Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. Today on the podcast, we're discussing what everyone is talking about, the midterm elections that took place earlier this week. We're recording this on Friday. You know the results, so we're not going to break any news there. But we do want to focus on the coverage. I was struck the morning after the election with the same feeling that I had the morning after the presidential race in 2016, which is the media got a lot of this wrong. A lot of the predictions that we saw about what was going to happen on Tuesday didn't come to pass. Now, you could argue that journalists aren't fortune tellers, and that's true, but they did spend a lot of time predicting a red wave for the Republicans. They were predicting huge election problems, which largely didn't materialize. And all of this has implications for how much voters and viewers and readers trust what reporters do. So what do we do about this? How can journalists accurately report on races? How do they think about polling in a better way? How can they better inform the electorate? To talk about this, I'm really happy to be joined by Ross Barkin. Ross, who's written for CJR, also covers politics for New York Magazine, The Nation, The Guardian, for his own Substack. So in our conversation, we look at the 2022 midterms, both from the New York race and the national race, and we think about how could we do this differently? What did reporters do right? What did they do wrong? And how do we like rethink this as we enter a new cycle? Ross, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I'm really wanting to hear your thoughts on the New York governor's race. Were you surprised at all by the results? Were you surprised at how the how the campaigns were covered? I was more surprised by the national picture than the New York picture. The, the New York picture, the, the results were along what I expected. I, I thought the Republicans would do very well. I didn't think Lee Zeldin would win, but I believed he would come pretty close. And I think that the Democrats fared about as poorly as I thought in the House races. They actually did a little bit better in the state legislative races than I thought they would. But overall, there are a few developments in New York that really surprised me at all. The national picture was very different than New York. So I think that that was interesting to me and to a lot of people. In terms of the media coverage, you know, there is an interesting divergence happening with how local broadcast and tabloid media um, covers topics like crime versus how, you know, online media, I would say, and and maybe how like the New York Times approaches it. And I, I don't want to ascribe too much power to the media at all, but I would say this election does show, at least to me, the, the enduring strength of tabloid media, particularly the New York Post, which does retain a lot of influence, and also local broadcast uh, media, the nightly news, which is still watched by a lot of older people, and I do think gets underrated by a lot of people in the media or political watchers who either aren't watching Channel 7 or Channel 4 or Channel 2 every night or picks 11 and don't quite always see the audiences they have built in and and the way their coverage does shape sometimes political narratives and and also how these broadcast outlets take their cues from tabloid media. And at this point, that's really the New York Post because they're the only well-funded tabloid newspaper left in New York. How did you think the Times coverage was of the race? My 
general critique of the times is they have a lot of very talented people there and they have good editors and they do an excellent job with the national international picture and they do very good stories locally the my issue with the times and i've been a broken record about this they've abandoned granular day-to-day coverage of the city completely and their political coverage to me at times feels too much like a takeoff of politico and i i i love politico and i think they do a great job but i also think the new york times doesn't have to merely be perhaps a more florid version of Politico. I do find occasionally with the New York Times' political coverage, they're simply taking stories that have already been written and then rewriting them with a slightly deeper dive and maybe a more interesting anecdotal lead and, and a more creative framing. But fundamentally, these are stories that have already been written in other outlets. And I'm going to talk about a Substack piece that you wrote on November 7th. And the headline was, is 2016 in the air? And you begin with this, I thought, hilarious anecdote about how in the in the previous few days you had, you said you'd gone to three rallies for Kathy Hochul and two parties for literary magazines in Brooklyn. And the magazine parties drew more people than the Hochul rallies, which you sort of took gave you an opportunity to comment on how there's a kind of roteness to the campaigning and even to the people who were there. And then there was there was this kind of big media panic uh, about Hochul mm-hmm. and like, oh, actually, she could really be threatened here. How much of that got people out and actually saved her in the end? Or was it her own like direct mail or whatever that saved it in the end, do you think? Yes, absolutely. The media plays a role. And look, New York is a very democratic state, and to overcome the partisan lean, you, you really have to do something dramatic. And, and Zeldin came fairly close to doing it, but there, there are also walls that any Republican runs into, and certainly one who is a Trump Republican like Zeldin. But I, I do think that the media's coverage probably got people out, particularly Democrats in New York City. If you look at the how the race shook out, it was really the margin in Manhattan and to an extent Westchester that saved Kathy Hochul. Manhattan was the bluest county in New York City. It was over 80% for Hochul against Zeldin. Westchester went 60-40 for her. You know, Brooklyn and Queens produced strong margins, though not as strong as Manhattan. And and if you look at the turnout, there, there definitely were Democrats who were tuning into the race and became alarmed that a election denying Republican could become the governor of New York. And look, that that in the final days, belatedly, that was the strategy of the Hochul campaign. And I, I, of course, rolled my eyes at the roteness of the rallies. But, you know, the rallies work in the sense that you get media coverage. Joe Biden comes to Westchester. Hillary Clinton comes to Manhattan. Bill Clinton comes to Brooklyn. You know, these things have some sort of net effect where the media writes about it. It becomes a top story. People pay attention. They go, oh, there's an election. Bill Clinton's here. Oh, there's an election. Hillary Clinton is here. So perhaps she wins anyway without those rallies. And I'm sure that's plausible. But there's a reason they do them. And um, they did them because they were in trouble. You know, I don't think this was an instance uh, where the media created a, a false horse race or something. And that, that, was a, that was a narrative that I do think is tired. And you would hear a lot actually before the 2016 election. I, re- I remember pieces from like August or September, or like October of 2016, that 
you know, from, from very sober people that were like, stop making Hillary Trump close because you want to get better ratings or you want to get better clicks. Hillary is going to win and just stop stop hyping Trump. Like you clearly just want Trump to win or think he can win so you can make people interested. And that, that actually that wasn't the, the case. And, and Trump won. So I, I don't think the media generally creates false horse races. Certainly the media is too focused on the horse race. And that's always an ongoing issue with political coverage. But given the environment we're in, given how polarized the country is, given how razor thin the margins are, how close these elections are, there's no doubt that you have to approach races now with the idea that either candidate can win. Um, and I, I think that's the fairest thing in general to do, because in many states and in many races, Republican, Democrat, that's accurate. One of the magazine parties you went to was for the Drift, which is a kind of hot um, Drift is literary good. magazine. Yes. How much were people there talking about the um, governor's race? Not at all. N- none, none that I heard, I would say. <laughs> what were they talking about? They were talking about books, culture, other, you know, gossip, other things. You know, I, I, as I wrote in my piece, uh, generally it, it's gratifying to me that there's an interest or sort of resurgent interest in mm. literary culture to an extent in the city. You know, I think there's a post-pandemic hungering to kind of come together and to do things and and to kind of invest in ideas or movements. And I think that's all great, you know, and and there was nothing performative about it. I mean, certainly people go to be seen or want to be in cool places, but, you know, it was different than a political rally. The the Clinton rally was very much this classic staged event that was created to be, you know, purely a media spectacle and was was not perhaps unlike the Biden rally at Sarah Lawrence College was not aimed at getting regular people in there to be excited and mm. to then vote for Hochul. It, it was a, a staged production for people like me in the press. So let's talk about the the national results. I woke up the next morning thinking that this had been another big media fail and thinking that, like, you know, the, the red wave, that the election system was going to be threatened, you know, the, the sort of very functioning of of the democracy was sort of at risk. Um, None of that materialized. Now, perhaps it's not the job of the press to guess, but they were guessing. I mean, people were speculating about all these things happening. And I just I just saw it as a kind of mirror image of what happened in 2016. It, It was basically a miscall. Do you agree with that? And do you have any sense of why that happened? I'm less critical of those in the media who are anticipating a red wave or a big Republicans showing because almost every midterm in modern times had pointed in that direction and polling, which has its own issues. And if anything, the big issues with polling in recent years has been underselling Republican enthusiasm. Polls were showing in a lot of these key races um, that Democrats were endangered. You know, you have and you, you had and still do high inflation, which is a concern for many people, rightfully so. In, in states like New York, there is anxiety over higher crime. And, you know, you look at the price of gas, which is almost this thing that you can yoke statistically to public opinion. It's quite fascinating. 
And logical, if you think about it. So I, I don't blame the media for that. I mean, the, the democracy at the brink rhetoric, this is coming directly from the Democratic Party. And it sometimes feels like the media is just filtering those talking points out and, and putting them into their coverage. You know, it's a tricky thing. On one hand, did Donald Trump and Republicans try to overturn the results of the 2020 election and, and steal it? I mean, yes, that, that's accurate. Is this the election that will determine determine the future of democracy? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, I, I I do have my own reservations about that kind of very grandiose rhetoric that is somewhat grounded in fact. But can you literally put every midterm or every single election into this kind of referendum of of yes or no to democracy? And and there are many people who'd argue with me and say, yes, the Republican Party is anti-democratic and you have to do that. But I'm I'm not so convinced by that at all. And I think, you know, the future is a lot murkier than it looks. And I think the the real threat, you know, for, for people on the left and, and the media is largely, you know, at least the, the conventional mainstream media, most people in it are Democrats or Democratic sympathetic. I mean, that that's just a fact. Um, you know, for them, the Republican takeover is catastrophic. They sometimes conflate the, the the real threat of an election being stolen to the more banal threat of Republicans have an edge in the Senate and the Electoral College. And that is the way votes are sorted now. And rural states do punch above their weight in the Senate. And Democrats have this real existing issue of how, how do you keep the Senate when rural states don't vote Democrat anymore? And this is a thing the press didn't used to care about. You know, you go back to 2008 or, you know, going into 2010, there was this very triumphant feeling about politics, certainly uh, with, with the Democrats threatening a veto-proof majority in the Senate and having senators from places like Iowa and Arkansas and Montana and then the Dakotas you know, this idea of uh, democracy being under threat because the Senate unfairly was weighted to rural states. M- most pundits and left-leaning people in the media did not care at all because these people were voting Democrat. And then for a variety of reasons, they did not and, and are not. So, you know, the, the, the quote threat is simply Democrats are going to struggle to win the Senate outright in the years to come. And that their voters now are sorted into cities and to suburbs, but are not distributed in rural areas. And Republicans have that natural edge and the Electoral College. We all have a problem with it. But, you know, that's the system we've been living under for over 200 years. And it's not going to change anytime soon. One of the lessons of 2016 was Republicans and conservatives were underweighted in the polls and even in the reporting that a lot of political reporters did. Um, And I think there's a chance it was overcorrected this time, thinking about like trust in the press and trust in media. People who were watching and listening to media in the run up to this race are rightly gonna feel that they were not getting an accurate picture of what was actually going on based on the election results. Yeah. Uh, Look, I I think that's an argument for the media trying to not be so predictive. Um, There's not really that great a value in guessing, you know, that there's some value in it. You know, I myself will make predictions, but I I try to always put caveats into them with with the simple caveat being I don't know and that the future is often unpredictable. And I, I think it's more a lesson that you don't have to build out your coverage into this frame of like what 
will happen and then trying to guess what will happen. You can simply cover what is in front of you. Um, what, ha- what happens if you pitch a story? I mean, you, yeah. you, you pitch freelance sure. stories and you, you, have a, you, you have a home at New York Magazine, but you also write for other people, including yep. CJR in the past. Well, what happens if you say, I've got an idea for a story. I don't quite know how this is going to turn out. We can sort of game out the various sort of options. I mean, is, is somebody going to say, well, we need to sort of come down on the side. Is that a kind of inherent push? I think so. Generally, if you're doing a opinion or analysis or anything like that, writing pieces that have a sharpness or edge to them and, and do have a clear thesis will do better and, and be more received by editors than pieces that do not. And uh, you know, I stand by everything I've written and you know, certainly in the past, you were pretty the, nuanced actually in your in your prediction of the governor's race. I thought it yeah, was pretty measured. Right, right, and that and that's my my own approach is always to try to be measured. Though you know, even I have opinions and arguments, and certainly on Twitter I do, but I I do always try to account for contingencies to account for the reality that the outcomes of elections or policy outcomes are often messy, and, and you can't truly. Yes, you know, you, you can try, but you're always staring through the fog to an extent. You know, in my, in my own work, and, and certainly in Substack in particular, and that's why I like Substack, I do get some freedom to really wrestle with bigger questions and, and, and to try to interrogate in different sides. You know, I, I write from a left perspective, but I try not to let that totally cloud my own judgment. I do think one of the things journalists should do, whether they're advocacy journalists or, quote, nonpartisan journalists, or to use kind of the boring phrase, objective, I do think they have to interrogate their own beliefs, their own biases. And this is just something you know people on the right don't do and people on the left don't do. And then, then you know, that they produce poorer work and, you know, the public suffers for it. You have a pretty, uh, you're pretty active on Twitter and you have a pretty good following. I mean, I actually think there's a chance that before the presidential election, Twitter could disappear. Do you? I would say no. I, I, I wouldn't bet against it vanishing. I, I could see it, you know, devol- You wouldn't bet for it vanishing. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't bet that it vanishes. Uh-huh. I, I, th- I think, you know, when, when in doubt, assume something will be there. The analogy I'll use is Donald Trump himself when after he came into office, so many people were convinced he would not finish out the term. You know, I had people coming to me, well, he's going to be gone by the summer of 17, yeah. 18, 19. He's getting impeached, getting convicted. Well, I was like, you know, he's a he's the president now and there's really no mechanism to get him out before he finishes his term. So you're saying term. I'm doing exactly what I complain about reporters doing, like over, 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 overestimating or being too sweeping. But let's just play a, par- a party events. game then. Sure. So Twitter does disappear. Right. Um, how uh, do you think? How do you? How does the coverage of twenty twenty four look different? It'll probably be on the balance, be similar or slightly better. You know, uh, you, you see what the the New York Times in particular, I, I think, has been smarter about this, where they put out that memo earlier this year, basically telling their reporters to not invest so much time in Twitter and that they were going to crack down on their reporter social media usage and they themselves the, the journalists should not feel pressure to be there and I think that was good you know I, I wrote about this on Substack at the time I, I really supported that so you know if, if Twitter vanishes you know what does the coverage look like look it's not like coverage was amazing before Twitter existed you know <laughs> it's not like in 2004 or you know 2008 or, or any year right that that me- media coverage 
was this halcyon thing. Joan Didion was writing great critiques of the press in, in the 1980s and how they were enthralled to these false events. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I, I think it be it's good for reporters to not spend too much time there. I think it can be good as a networking tool. You can find sources. I've you know made friends on there and I use it. At the same time, it can warp your perception of reality. And, you know, things that seem like a very big deal are not. I mean, I'll, I'll give an example. This is a bit of a tangent and, and doesn't have to do with 2024. But you, you think of um, you know, these debates over cancel culture, right? And you, you've seen over the years various companies or places fire employees or change on a dime or worry about perception because there's a Twitter uproar. I mean, you've seen Twitter uproars really you know, change the directions of, of certain entities. And, you know, I, I think companies or, you know, entities had these had the skewed perception that a Twitter uproar equaled a real life uproar, that the fact that 50 or 100 people screaming from their Twitter accounts meant you had to suddenly change course. And I think in a post Twitter world, people, I hope, will just be more reality based in the sense that unless you see hundreds or thousands of people in the street gathering to protest you, there probably isn't a, you know, a popular uprising against what you're doing. In, in the sense of being a journalist, what you see on Twitter where, where people are angry about something or alarmed about something or excited about something, that could be a reflection of reality, but could also is just a reflection of the niche that you're most plugged into. So what are you going to be spending the next couple of years on in terms of the presidential race? Like, how, do, how are you going to go about thinking about that? What are the questions that you want to answer in your reporting that aren't being answered? You know, it's a really good question. You know, it's just, just been so bogged into bogged down into the midterms and, and this kind of nutty, nutty dynamic. Um, but, you know, 2024, it very well just may, may be a retread of, of 2020. I'm I'm very interested to see if this push by the Biden administration to revive manufacturing, particularly the, the semiconductor industry, you know, does that start to bear fruit? Demographic trends are always very interesting to me. How people are voting, you know, you've seen uh, the the movement of certainly uh, Latino voters towards the Republican Party. You've seen uh, smaller movements of Black voters that way, and definitely at least in New York and and some other states, you're seeing the Asian vote moving towards the GOP. Does that continue? You know, how, how do the parties sort out uh, both ideologically and demographically? You know, I, th- I think the Democratic Party has a lot of flaws, but it's interesting that it's over-reliance now on college-educated voters, as you know, people have written this, may have been a, a quiet advantage in the midterms because college-educated voters tend to vote more. And the big problem in the Obama years was this coalition would only show up in presidential years and then it would vanish in the midterms. And, and this it happened twice. The Democratic coalition didn't really vanish in this midterm. I mean, it, it was down from 2020. Republicans on, on the whole voted more. But that's always interesting to me where these parties are headed because, you know, that they are a, a constant reality in the picture of this democracy. They're not going anywhere. And, you know, what what is a... a, a 
Trump or post-Trump Republican Party start to look like? You know, does the Republican Party pivot slightly left on economic questions as they did in the Trump years while sticking to their culture war fare? Do they pull back from the culture war a bit after the 2022 midterms? You've been seeing a lot of debate on on, on the conservative side about were they too invested in the uh, what I'll say uh, is, is lack of, for lack of a better term, the own the libs culture. Was that t- too much of an obsession for them? You know, and did they did they themselves deviate from economics or or go too far in social issues? Finally, you know, to the question of what are you going to be doing for the next couple of years? Like I've I, I've long thought, and I th- and I really thought this during the Trump years that one of the things that's needed in political coverage is a different form different ways of telling a politics story, not not the diner, not the um, sort of like 36,000-foot Peter Baker <laughs> analysis piece, not the semaphore, which I don't think really <laughs> moves the needle much on that. Have you thought about that, about like how to tell these stories? It, one, in a way that will resonate more, but also in a way that will really capture what's going on. This started because there was a moment in the middle of the Trump years that it just, it seemed insane to be living through this moment. And I would read the coverage really closely. And I would have this sense that what I'm reading does not capture what is happening right now. There was something missing. Do you know what I'm talking about? I would say the structure of a news article or, you know, how to approach these issues is, you know, it, it's this long-running debate, and I agree that there's no satisfying mode in that e- each mode has its own flaws. You know, the, the classic feature, of course, can have—I love the feature, but the, the feature can have real flaws in terms of truth-telling, where you can let a narrative or let a floor description run away from reality. It's very easy to do that. The axiosemiform approach is— sometimes not sophisticated enough though i'm i'm less down on semaphore than some of the media are i think they hired some very good reporters i I like dave weigel's newsletter a lot i think it's pretty good i just think the notion that they've rethought the article is not no they have not no they've not at all they've just uh, are doing basic reporting then throwing in slightly more analysis or opinion at the end and labeling it which is fine it's a way to do it not opposed no, I think someone like Dave, who just travels around the country and, and, and talks to people and, you know, he's very much on the ground. Like, like I know it, it's cliche to say, but, you know, there, there's there's more to do than, than diner piece. And, and I agree. And it's, you know, to really invest in those resources and have reporters talking to regular voters, because the thing you find when you talk to regular voters or you diversify, you know, your social circle, people have heterodox views. You know, I think there's this idea in the media, a Democrat is one way, a Republican's the other way. Everyone checks the boxes on certain issues. And people in the media are shocked to find that ordinary people just hold views that are not in line with stereotypes. In terms of form, it's tricky. But, you know, I, I thought the New York Times has done a good job when they'll just run profiles on regular voters. And I remember they, they did a thing not long ago on black men voting. I think it was in Georgia. And I, I thought it was a good piece, you know, that they went out and talked to a variety of black men and asked them, you know, are you voting for, you know, Brian Kemp, Abrams, you know, Warnock, Walker? And, and you got a, a pretty interesting picture where, you know, the, some of these voters were genuinely torn or were going to vote one way and, and, and really were just given time to speak their minds. And I just I can't say it enough that 
reporters just have to go out and meet people and, and look and, and not and that comes with the travel budget I'm not saying everyone has to parachute into towns or cities or whatever but I mean my own golden rules you know I, I have friends in the media but I try to also have friends who are just not in media friends who just have nothing to do with the press who have nothing to do with what I do um, you, you, you have know, real friends yes real friends <laughs> I try to yes and and I think it's healthy you get less blindsided by things you know, I wrote a piece on Substack uh, very recently about the Asian vote in New York City and, and how Asian American voters are voting even more Republican now and it's the type of thing where I live in these neighborhoods or I'm close to them and and just you know you're you're kind of in it so so you feel it and you understand it but I I do think we go back to Twitter for a second you you can get very cloistered there and 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 that that's trite to say as well at this point but but it's a fact where you you're following the same accounts you know the same accounts are producing the same takes editors are on twitter looking for stories you know reporters are there looking for stories and it it does become this mirror and it, and, and it's not always the best thing at all. So in terms of the you know the form, I, I think on one hand, you know the, the conventional form of newspapers is not the worst thing in the world, and there's no single form that's going to unlock all truth, right? I, I think truth will come down to reporters who are seeking it, who are telling it, and who are really trying to just I- interrogate their own blind spots. Ross, thanks a lot. It's great to talk to you. Thank um, you for having me. You can read Ross on Substack. RossBarkin.substack.com. So my first and last name together, .substack. <laughs> <laughs>